Welcome to 2020 Politics War Room. With James Carville and I'm Albert Hunt. We have another special guest this week, Jill Abramson, former executive editor of the New York Times, author of a great book on the contemporary American media. As always, we have Christy Harvey in the back page. I hope everyone will subscribe, rate, and review. And we'll start with Jill, who was the only woman executive editor of the New York Times, a Harvard professor, and wrote Merchants of Truth, which is really an incredibly important book on the modern media. So, Jill, it's great to have you here. here. And let me start off by asking you this. The Washington Post, Margaret Sullivan, who, who may have worked for you once. She did. I, I selected her as public editor of the New York Times. Well, she did. A, she's doing a great job at the Post. But she criticized the media coverage of the impeachment this week as saying it was too much false equivalency. It ought to be more focused, more pointed, and factually exposing lies and truth. That this sense of, on the one hand and on the other hand, has, has really been a disservice. Do you agree with her? I usually agree with her on almost everything, but in this case, I think the the coverage has been quite good. And I thought her major point is she wanted it all boiled down better so that persuadable people could, you know, understand it and get real facts. I don't see much false equivalency here. I see close coverage of the witnesses. And, you know, I I think most people who are paying attention get it. They understand what happened. Uh, And, you know, some of I thought that that the constitutional lawyers were helpful in terms of framing whether what happened is serious enough to be not only a violation of the Constitution, but grounds to remove an elected president. Well, I, you know, I think you're right. Uh, and, and I think Margaret's frustration is that, that if you follow it closely and you look at it, I mean, the case is really quite compelling. Uh, and, and yet the public opinion hasn't changed. I don't think that's a reflection of media coverage. I think that's a reflection of a polarized electorate, polarized public. Right. And she's critical of reporters for reflexively using the word partisan, hiding behind it. And I don't really agree with that either because, I mean, Washington is at a partisan standstill. And, you know, if all of the Republicans in the Senate stay behind the president, it will be a straight up partisan vote. Um, to acquit him in the Senate. Yeah, you, you know, uh, when back in the day, you know, when I campaigned and you guys were in journalism and stuff, it, it, we actually thought, and I, I think there was some evidence that, you know, if a big story came, it had some effect on the dynamic and some effect on the campaign. If the campaign had something particularly effective that it said it could, could start something and people would go. Now, it, it seems to me, it doesn't matter what they write how they write it, how much truth is in it, what the facts are. It Every time I go to 538, it's 43, 41.6 to 53.5. And we, we have all this new news and all this information has come into the system. And I'm I, I pretty sympathetic that a lot of it, I think, has been, you know, well reported. I, 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 don't, I don't think that the the... the the media is ignoring this in any any way, shape, or form. 
it, it just looks like we're all talking to each other and no one is listening. And is this going to, is this a continuing, an ongoing uh, byproduct of the current partisanship? Or, or is this going to change where people pay attention and be influenced by some of these events? I, it's a byproduct, if I can jump in, of technology also, of how people get get their news. And the biggest way people get their news is from their Facebook feeds. And the almighty algorithm figures out down to where you live, how old you are, how frequently you vote. Uh, exactly, you know, your political views and what you like most of all. And it feeds you more and more of what you like. And so many people are only exposed to information that is like-minded with themselves. Same with same same with watching television. We watch MSNBC if you're on the left and you watch at night and you watch uh, Fox if you're on the right. Right. A smart guy named Eli Pariser uh, called this the filter bubble, and that's what it is. We're all in our own filter bubbles and rarely exposed to information that comes from sources that we don't agree with. So this is something I've noticed on my side the equation, on the campaign side. And this was true in the Kentucky governor's race was as a was very involved in it, as I was Louisiana governor's race. And this is an increase. They don't, the Repub- Bevan and, and Responi, they don't campaign. They bring Trump in for rallies and they go to fundraisers. But th- the, the way that a statewide, I mean, our brand, our brand race is in Kentucky and you'd go to the Pikeville Kiwanis Club and, I mean, there were certain, uh, you went to Fancy Farm and there were certain things that you did in Kentucky that are the same as true in Louisiana. They don't do events anymore. They just do Trump, and then they put Trump on TV. And that it, it, Responi didn't even talk about what he would do as governor. He would. He just said he would govern like Donald Trump. Well, let's take that to the presidential level. And and Jill Wayne, I mean, you, you you said you thought the impeachment coverage has been pretty good. How about the coverage? And we and we're we're we're, we're going to get back to impeachment. We're not through with it. But how about the coverage of the of the of the national campaign? You know, I think that that's been pretty good, too. Uh, we, we'll have to wait to see whether, you know, places like the New York Times fulfill their promise to really get out in the country and do the kind of shoe leather reporting and talking to people if they'll talk to a reporter now nowadays, uh, you know, to really get at how the country is feeling. Because the Times admitted after the 2016 election in a letter that Dean Baquet and Arthur Salzberger Jr. both signed. And, you know, I, I think it's rare when journalists concede that they've screwed up, but they they owned up to, you know, not getting the wave of anger that was out in the country, particularly in red America. And, you know, I, I've seen glimmers of hope that, you know, the Times and other, you know, news organizations are doing that. Uh, you know, I think 
if you read either the Times or the Washington Post, where Dan Baltz is a great example of the kind of reporting that we need more of, uh, going to places, talking to real people, and really having a accurate pulse of, of the nation. Uh, you know, I think that that they, they're serving their readers well. I can take a little bit of issue here. I, I think that the, the press was mischaracterized the Democratic Party, and I think they over and uh, the candidates followed it. So I'm not totally here how dominant the identity politics were of the left wing of the Democratic Party. It, it one of the stories that no one has got. I, I I go to 5:38 and I look at that their average of polls o- over time among the Democrats. And what has clearly happened is the Warren Sanders share has dropped precipitously. So I'm talking to people that are doing focus groups. I can can learn more, in my opinion, talking to one political consultant who sat in three focus groups and I can't just knock it on random doors. And everybody is saying the same thing. These Democrats are just pragmatic to, to, to the extreme. And they discuss in great strategic detail about how Warren's Medicare for all is not. I think the impression that was left about the Democratic Party is not being bared out so far in, in at, at the polling I've seen this far in the campaign. Uh, I mean, I, Sanders and Warren had a combined New Hampshire number in one of the polls of like 24. And I think that, that the influence of the left, there's some chance that that's been exaggerated. It's, it's possible. Yeah. What, what, how about investigative reporting? Well, you know, we're talking right after the Washington Post has published this magnificent investigative report based on, you know, documents of interviews done with top officials involved in the war in Afghanistan, you know, admitting that they knew it was a total disaster and fiasco. But obviously, you know, both President George W. Bush and President Obama and their administrations were lying to to the country about the progress of the war. If they don't win the Pulitzer Prize for that, then Joe Burrow's not going to win the Heisman Trophy. Well, I mean, I I think it's 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 great reporting and 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 you know it's it's special. It really is. We said earlier, Joe, it, or you know, we at one point we we're just chatting. It, it is it is like the Pentagon Papers. I mean, it, it, there are differences, but it's very very much like the Pentagon Papers. But I think there's been good investigative reporting throughout. I think a lot of the Russian stuff involved really good investigative reporting. It wasn't just. I mean. Bob Mueller did not exculpate. I mean, let's not forget, it was the Washington Post, I believe, that broke the fact that there was a whistleblower. We don't know that would have come out otherwise. I, I, I am not, the only place I criticize the, the press, to be clear, is I think that they overplayed the, the, the left in identity politics in the Democratic Party. I think that they have, bro- I think they've done a good job on Russia. I think the facts are very clear. The problem is they write their stories and eighty percent of the Republicans think the Ukrainians did it. And I it, it it has to be frustrating to be a journalist 
to work as hard as some of these some of these people work in journalism, you know, to 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 work on these stories, to print them, and you know, the same fifty-seven percent believe you, and the same forty-three percent don't believe you. And I, 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 it's a dangerous way to have a country. I hope this does not continue. But there's certain people in this country just impervious to facts. And I don't know. I can't blame. I don't know if journalism is at fault for that. No, I don't think it's at fault for that. But the most frightening thing of all is there isn't even agreement on what facts are anymore. And, you know, I think back to Margaret's column for a second that it's not really the job of journalists to, at least for news reporters, to uh, persuade the public I mean, the, the, the duty is to inform the public. And so it, it is frustrating. You know, I know f- that from having been managing and an executive editor of The Times. I mean, this was happening back then, too. But uh, it's still, you know, it still feels rewarding when you unveil something like that the Afghanistan papers. It's a, it's a record. It's, you know, not to be corny, but the first draft of history. And, you know, that that still has value. It may not believe be be believed by, you know, a lot of people who wouldn't believe anything that the Washington Post uh, printed. But that's still not really the the burden of a free press. Uh, you know, as I said, it's to inform, not really to persuade. Right. Well, but but I mean, I I, I agree. But but let's just take a couple of examples in this in this in this current scandal. Uh, there were there were dueling narratives at that impeachment committee hearing uh, this week. Uh, Republicans saying, well, you know, Ukraine really did it. And the Democrats saying that's utter nonsense. The Russians did it. Now, you know, I'm sorry. That's not on the one hand. On the other hand, the Ukraine story is totally bogus. And so uh, same thing with 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 Joe Biden. I think it's outrageous that his son worked for that energy company. But Joe Biden not only didn't do anything wrong, he did everything right. And uh, and and yet, I, I think the narrative gets you know kind of on the one hand, on the other hand, not with the Times and Post so much, but a little bit with the networks. I guess I don't I don't agree that Joe Biden did everything right because, you know, at the point he knew his son was lobbying for effectively a state, you know, gas company that you know had a little bit of a a shady reputation. I mean, I, I'm just thinking if I were him, you know, I would have read the riot act to my kid and said, don't do this. It could explode in my face. It, it, even if we, you know, stick to the letter of the law, it still has carries an appearance of, of you know, co- conflict of interest when I'm the vice president and you're lobbying really for a foreign government. Well, I no, I agree with you actually on that. I mean, I I was saying he did everything right as far as getting that corrupt prosecutor fired. That that wasn't, but but he never should have let his son uh, get in that position and stay in that position. I agree on yeah, that. It, yeah, it 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 was it was poor judgment. But there's no to, to be fair, and it's been reported. I don't know if it matters. There's no action that Biden took in that anybody has been able to find that favored his son at all. And in fact, 
all of the evidence is, is, is he tried to get an honest prosecutor and honest enforcement over there. So it, I, I, and I think when I say that, that is pretty clearly been reported to the American people, They believe it or not. I, I guess I want to go back to my original point. When, when most people start their careers, when you were young, when y'all were working together at the Wall Street Journal, when you were young, you, you had a passion for getting good stories. But part of the lure of the profession was is that you would make a difference, that you'd expose these stories and, and you would work hard and public opinion would move. It seems to me that the journalists today are working as hard as ever. A lot of them, I mean, it's, it's fewer and it's more concentrated at the Post and the Times and maybe, it, you know, what I was coming up, the, the, the journals are for sure. But, you know, McClatchy was big and the, 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 you know, USA Today had a lot of clout. I mean, people are just, you basically, you know, the Enquirer was influential, the, the LA Times, you know, it, it's just different. And it feels like they write these stories and nothing happens. And that's got to be frustrating to, 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 I would think it's frustrating to, to, to journalists, particularly younger ones. It, I mean, it, no doubt it is frustrating, but, you know, those frustrations have existed since, you know, I worked for Al at the Wall Street Journal covering money and politics and doing all kinds of investigations of obvious conflict of interest, uh, secret donations being made to lawmakers by people who were seeking favors, sort of just like the narrative in the the Ukraine story. And, you know, I, I, in the back of my mind, I always felt that I hoped that those stories would lead to some kind of campaign finance reform. And, you know, instead we got this Citizens United decision. So, but that doesn't mean, you know, I felt so frustrated that those stories were meaningless or without any impact. Uh, It's, you know, thus it has always been so. I mean, what's different now and so frightening, I think, is this failure to be able to come to an agreement on even what the basic facts are. I, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, don't want to stay just drilled down, but I think the three of us know pretty much what the basic facts are. And I don't think we have much doubt in our mind about what they are. Right. But but as Al pointed out, the Republicans are exploiting the fact that they can con- create a completely false narrative with made-up facts, and their constituency is going to believe them. Well, yeah, you're right. Let me give you one example. I watched the whole time when Steve Castor, the lawyer for Jim Jordan and the Republicans, was testifying. This is the lawyer. This is not a politician, uh, you know, who supposedly, you know, who who's going to play games with that because of worried about what how it's going to play at home. He was a lawyer, and he I'm sure he's a conservative lawyer. But among other things, he went and he said that Nancy Pelosi had said that it would be dangerous to let voters decide Donald Trump's fate. Jill, that is one. It's simple to describe that statement. It's a lie. It's an absolute lie. Uh, he also went on to say that you, these Democrats don't know how to run investigations, suggesting that we, as Republicans, did. This is, you know, Trey Gowdy, Jason Chavitz, Devin Nunes, sure. But that was just ignored. To, I mean, this was the council. This was not a small guy. 
but it's kind of future shock. There's so much that goes on. I mean, this guy should just be signaled out for being uh, what he was. He's a guy who just lied on a couple of things yesterday, but it doesn't much matter. No, it doesn't. I, you know, sadly, I agree. Wow, yeah. we're really yeah, an we upper really got army, it. Huh? We don't. We we agree at uh, all of this. Uh, wow, it, 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 it it's amazing though, and I, I I just have to believe that it's going to come back. And I I don't know why. I'm an older guy that says, "Oh, we just just can't continue, can it?" Maybe it will. Well, let me let me let me give you one ray ray of optimism, and that is read 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 Merchants of Truth, because basically what I think when you read that. I think when Jill started doing that book, I don't know what your mindset was, but the Washington Post and New York Times were struggling. And you know, it's not you know, it's not all a gravy train right now. But 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 they have it. They have adapted. They have adjusted. They are still great newspapers. The Los Angeles Times really went downhill, and they're only part way back. But they are coming back now. A lot of local news is is suffering, and that's really important, uh, and that's going to hurt a lot of communities. But some of the really good news organizations, Jill, you are the expert on this. I, I think there's a lot of encouraging news. I think the work being done is better than it ever has been as a whole. And I don't think, I mean, we're talking mostly about the impeachment coverage. But when you look at coverage of things like Harvey Weinstein and setting off the Me Too movement and, you know, that has changed workplace behavior, not, you know, so that there's no sexual misconduct. But, you know, some journalism has a tremendous impact. Ooh, uh, yes, yeah, that is really changed. Yeah, yes. yeah. Well, uh, as I say, I think uh, what everybody who's listening ought to do is go out and buy a copy of Merchants of Truth. <laughs> Thanks. I should uh, and, really buy Mishiko Kakutani's The Death of Truth, I fear. <laughs> no, I want him to read your book first. Uh, oh, thanks. Uh, James, James, you want to add anything? No, I mean, I, I, it, it's so amazing that, like, the three of us have a conversation, and it, it strikes me that we all agree. I, I mean, it's not a... It, you know, I, I look for reasons when you do a show like this. Of course, you look for reasons because it's more provocative if you disagree with someone. But it, it's just it's just hard to disagree on any of this because the facts are so obvious. And I keep wondering, am I missing something? And, and I've wondered and wondered, but I, just, I, can't, I don't know what I'm missing. The facts are sitting there right in front of me. Well, James, the, you know, that's a problem we have when we get someone on who's smarter than we are. We're always going <laughs> to agree with them. Uh, Well, even but I don't think even got to be very smart to see what the facts are here. I think he can be pretty stupid and see them. (laughs) Anyway, listen, this is this has been fun. It's been it's been edifying. And Joe Joe Abramson has a more important assignment right now than talking. (laughs) She's got to go pick up her grandchild. Uh, All right. So, Jill, as always, I love you and thank you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. It's been a ton of fun. And now, James, for what is a highlight every week, the inimitable Christy Harvey. Hey, fellas. How are you this week? Oh, have we hear from you? We good. I figure we're just a little bit away from Christmas. So instead of some numbers this week, I thought we could compile, help Santa out and compile a bit of a naughty nice list for him. So I have the start of my list, somebody I think was very naughty and someone I think was very nice. And on my naughty list is a guy named Robert Marbot 
Uh, Mr. Marbet was just tapped to head our Federal Council on Homelessness by Donald Trump. Uh, and his previous claim to fame is this is the right wing consultant who travels around the country and advises mayors that in order to solve their homelessness problems, they should outlaw feeding homeless people and stop charities, churches and others from offering food to people who live on the streets. You're, uh, you're is, making this up. I'm not making this up. I'm, and this this especially <laughs> made my blood boil because, you know, over the course of a year, 2.5 million children in this country are homeless at some point. So um, the fact that this guy is now in charge of those kids makes me very, very angry. Uh, anybody on your naughty list? Uh, my naughty list? But I have to num- I wanted to do numbers. I want to throw you can do both. numbers out. I, I, 10, 10 to 15. What does that mean to you? 10 to 15. Years in jail for something. No, that's what Trump said, that how many times you had to flush the toilet. Ew. That you can't. All right. I'm, I'm serious. I'm serious. He was doing some kind of change in a regulation. He said, now you go to the bathroom, you got to flush the toilet 10 to 15 times. Now, it, 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 everything he does is a lie. It, it, this is a common experience that most people have undergone quite frequently in their life. And it strikes me, at least in, in my instance, is being totally wrong. But at any rate, the 10 to 15 is the, is the, the two numbers that I was James, does he need a doctor? I, I, I'm worried about his gastrointestinal oh, yeah. system. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He needs a doctor. I think, I think he's just lying. I don't think, yeah. it's, I don't think it's that what it is. He just, <laughs> he just decided to say something. The, uh, oh, man. The other... The thing that I, I noticed that Albert would really appreciate, one of the, the Tea Party Hall of Famers is retiring. Ted Yoho. Oh, my God. Oh, Ted Yoho, we hardly knew you. gave you a right to have a nuclear weapon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're, they're, they're dropping like flies, man. These retirements are killing me. We're going to miss Ted. We're going to miss, you know... Flushing the toilet fifteen times every time we go to the to the loo here. James, if you add <laughs> if you added the IQ of Ted Yoho and Louis Gomart, do you think you get room temperature? Yeah, you know Yoho is a veterinarian. Some of these guys are. I, I think they take dumb pills. He's got to be one of them. <laughs> so are we putting him on the the nice? I don't know. We can put him on the nice list for deciding to finally retire. I, I yeah, I kind of I, I like having around. I don't think Democrats are plus nine districts, so the Democrats can't win. If you're gonna have a you know, if you're gonna have one, have a buffoon. And I mean, he is a real, real buffoon. He, he's an entertaining guy. <laughs> Christy, I have a naughty candidate. Okay, it's me, uh, and I'll tell you why. Months ago, I wrote, actually, the first part of this year, the impeachment process was inevitable, and everybody said it's going to be partisan. I said, yeah, probably would be, but there are few Republicans who might rise above petty politics if there's a case there. And I specifically mentioned Georgia Rep. Doug Collins, who's very conservative, a homophobe, but he's a former military chaplain with a reputation for integrity. Oh, how wrong, how naughty I was, Christy. Oh, the Albert. ranking Republican <laughs> on the Judiciary Committee cast aside all principles and engaged in cheap, petty politics cavalierly dismissing any of the serious charges against Trump and focusing on the Democratic Council uh, uh, or, or, or why, why calls, why there were calls released to nefar- about the nefarious Congressman Devin Nunes number. He's 
considering running for a Senate seat, even though the, the governor appointed someone else. So he's going all in for Trump. And that he's put pandering well ahead of any principles. And I apologize for being naughty and saying that Doug Collins might be a patriot. All right. I feel like we've got a, a good list of, of coal recipients for Santa. I do have one nice, nice one, though, uh, for the nice side of the naughty nice list. Uh, and that's Steven Strasberg, who just signed a $245 million uh, deal for seven years with the Washington Nationals to stay on as pitcher. And he is going to defer $80 million of that to 2028 in order to try and make the salary stuff work to keep third baseman Anthony Rendon. So Hunt, I start with you. Does this mean we get to keep Rendon? Oh my God, I hope so. Right? I'm, I am ecstatic with the Strasburg signing. He's one of the three best pitchers in baseball without question now. He's actually, I, I idolize Max Scherzer. You know, when it, when it came to the end of the year, Strasburg, uh, you know, is even better than Scherzer. He's right up there with Cole and DeGrom. It, it, it's so great that we re-signed him, and deferring that income, I think, is important. It's a very—it uh, enables us to sign Rendon. They ought to do it. Uh, I hope Anthony wants to come back. If we have Strasburg and Rendon, we can make the other pieces fit. It, it's a—you know, the, this was the greatest season ever, and, and this is just a, a, a great December move. It, it, I have one thing to add. I, I want to give a, a nice, a big nice, I mean a really big nice to the Washington Post. This Afghanistan papers that oh, they boy. took three years to get. Oh, yeah. I, I, and what, what sort of concerns me is this is, at least as far as I can discern, not much of a topic of conversation. And, I mean, if, if the quotes in there from, by name were, were just breathtaking. That, that General Luke, I mean, he is, a, he is a highly regarded person. And... I mean, and Rumsfeld just out and out admitting it. We're going to have to figure a way that, that this country can come to a conclusion when we just haven't won a war. I mean, you'd think after Vietnam and after the Pentagon Papers and after everything else that we would have learned something. You know, sometimes you know people have this massive distrust of, of, of government or, or what they say, and we go, oh, no, no. But, but, and you see something like this, it, it really shakes your faith. This is a sequel to the Pentagon Papers. It's the same genre. Uh, the Post did a, they were patient. They were, they, they, they got documents. It's a fabulous, I've read two parts of the, of the series. It's fabulous. There's all kinds of lessons there. The government lied to us. Obama looks awful. Bush looks awful. I mean, what was the reason for starting this? Well, we went in Afghanistan because that's where, uh, you know. The Northern Alliance. We went, well, the yeah, Northern and Osama bin Laden was there, and we were going to get him. And then a year later, they brought it up with George W. Bush, who said, no, I don't want to talk to the general. I'm, I'm, I'm more focused on Iraq. The, the, the overarching lesson, which was the lesson of Vietnam, which is the lesson of Afghanistan, which is the lesson of Iraq, is if you're going to go into some place, you better have a plan in the beginning of how to get out. And we have not. And we have paid a huge price. I get into an argument with friends of mine like John Nagel, who's a great guy, was Petraeus, his counterinsurgency guy, who said it was a mistake to go in. But then Obama made a mistake when he pulled out in 2010, even though the Iraqis didn't want us. If it was a mistake to go in, why the heck do you double down and compound that mistake years later? And one final point, James, I will give the one I really will give credit to is George H.W. Bush and Jim Baker, who in who in, in, in 1991 fought a war the way it was supposed to be fought. There was a justification. The, the Saddam Hussein had invaded another country, was threatening others. They went in there with a massive force. They, they enlisted allies, and then they got out. You, you know, 
why I think this is worse than the Pentagon and the Vietnam stuff, because we'd already gone through it. I mean, somebody, when this started, we don't train our officers at, at, at West Point or Annapolis. Uh, uh, they don't teach them history where someone didn't say, look, we're going in here. We don't have an exit plan. We did this in Vietnam. It worked terribly. I mean, the body of historical knowledge within the military chain of command in 2001 should have been profound, deep. I mean, like Craig Simmons, our friend, teaches at the Naval Academy. You know, God knows how many expert historians there are at, at, at West Point. What, how, do they, how do we educate people? How, how did we get to a point that after the, the utter sickening, gut-wrenching, mega disaster of Vietnam, do we just do the same thing again? Well, I yeah, and I think some celebrated American generals like David Petraeus and Stanley McChrystal better do some explaining. Well, you know, Anthony Pesevich, he says something really smart. He says a private that loses his rifle is in more trouble than a general that loses a war. That's true. Yeah. yeah. So whose career, whose career has gone to hell in a handbasket over this? Where, where is where is the, the the you know if you lose a private loses his rifle, man, they court martial you. They do anything. Who is going to stand up and say, God Almighty, did we, we really blew this? I, I mean, uh, General Lute was just brutally frank, but I think he, uh, my, my sense is he didn't know he was being heard. He was frank internally, but somebody, we got to have people that tell us about this. This this war's been going on since 2001, we're now 2019. That, that's unbelievable. 18, and, and, 18 uh, and, years. And a disaster that they knew was a disaster. And they knew it very early on, too. And, uh, they that did. Was, uh, that, that's, Rumsfeld that's, knew it. They all knew it. That's what's so horrifying about this. Christy, you, you want to say something, but before we go, you want to say something about the press. Yeah, I just I think in this day and age when we see so many local newsrooms close and so many uh, newspapers go under or shrink their staffs, this is just a a really powerful reminder of the power that the press has to bring these things to light. And pieces like this are just absolutely must read, uh, just both for the information they contain and also for reminding us the power of good journalism. Also reminds us you're great even without numbers, but you can come back with numbers next week. Thank you, Christy Harvey. Absolutely. All right. I'll add you guys to my nice list, too. How's that? Right. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. You're a pander. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. James, you may be focusing on hot spots in the Riviera or what operas you want to see over the holiday season. But, but, but there is something called the college football playoffs. And their teams like Oklahoma, Ohio State, the defending champion Clemson Tigers, and the Louisiana State University. Are you following this at all? Oh, my God. Uh, it's it's like, I, I, I don't know, never had it. It's like out-of-body experience. First of all, we're, my family, is we're driving to Atlanta to go to the game. Family's going to take a road trip. All right. Joe Barra might have had the best football season of any college football play in history when you think of Talking what about the lsu quarterback yeah, yeah joe Burrow is the, the quarterback at lsu if you you think about what, what he did it's staggering if you think about the people that he did it against it, it's mind-boggling so they'd say you know georgia has the fourth best defense in the country of course they have the best defense in the country because they play a, i guarantee you the, the teams that are one two three didn't play anybody 
Joe Burrow just picked him. They, they were considered to have the finest pass defense in the country. They're like, they didn't even exist. Uh, and, and he's done this. The LSU is the first team since 1936 to play five teams that were ranked in the top 10 at the time they played them. So when you stop and you see the season that Joe Burrow's had, you go, wow, you know, and well, look at the season that Steve Young had at BYU. You know, uh, I don't know, a Jim Plunkett had at Stanford. They weren't playing anybody compared to who Joe Burrow was playing. I mean, it, it, okay. Let's talk. Let's let's talk about the teams. Uh, I mean, I think LSU is a is a favorite, followed by Clemson and Ohio State. Oklahoma yeah, really they're, they're nobody Clemson, thinks they're going to win. I'd put them all in LSU. But but, but let me let me let me let me just bring up Clemson because I think if you look at it, Clemson didn't really play anybody. The ACC is really a weak conference compared to the SEC and the Big Ten. Uh, when you play Virginia or my beloved alma mater, Wake Forest, it's not like playing Alabama, Auburn, or Georgia, or Penn State, Michigan, and Wisconsin. So it's sort of easy to say, I, you know, Clemson, they haven't been tested, and uh, and and they're not as highly ranked. But then you got to remember, last uh, last last January, what they did to Alabama, uh, and weak schedule or not, I don't think you can count them out. I don't know. The betters don't count them out. They're favored against Ohio State. I mean, the gamblers have to. I mean, that that's insane. It, they they ran over. They beat Alabama like a bad piece of meat. I mean, it it was it was a trouncing they had out there in California. So I don't count them out. Ohio State. I mean, they got the four people up for the Heisman Trophy. Two of them playing Ohio State. That's pretty rare. I, I, look, I mean, you know, we're they, 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 we're heading into. I, could be some of the more remarkable college playoff games that we've had in a long time. I mean, you got, and I, you know, Oklahoma, they got one loss. They got a, you know, one of the best receivers in the country. They got a, a Heisman finalist at quarterback. Uh, you know, LSU's defense has been good the last two games of the year, but it's been suspect at times. I mean, I'm the line open at nine and a half. They bet it up to 13, <laughs> but we'll see. But, I think the better, I think, I think the betters know what they're talking about. I hate to say this because my wife was born in Oklahoma, but uh, I think uh, Oklahoma is also ran in this group. But boy, the other three. We'll see. Uh, yeah, it's right. going to be a great They're, they're going to be some great games. Mm-hmm. Great series. And I just hope that car ride goes well, James. Was, That's my biggest well, worry. Well, I'm going right to take now. my Ford <laughs> Ranger pickup truck so we can put all the stuff in the back. And, <laughs> um, I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be fun. Yeah, half of Louisiana will be up there. And, uh, you know, people in a good mood. So we'll see. Well, go Tigers. Listen, uh, this has been great today. And uh, thank you all for listening. And we'll see you or we'll listen to you. We'll hear you. We'll talk to you a week from now. Goodbye. Goodbye. Go Tigers.